After the sermon, we will sing together from Psalm 62, stanzas 5, 6, and 7. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this Lord's Day deals with our earthly possessions, with all the things we own. At least that's what we think, for we think and act as if we own our possessions. Psalm 24 verse 1, however, says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. Whatever we possess is all from God. He gave it to us to enjoy. So they also belong to him, not to us. We are mere stewards of God's gift to us. And that's one of the hardest things for us to put into practice and to grasp. And that's what I will preach to you about this afternoon. The theme is, the Eighth Commandment teaches us to be good stewards. We will look at three things. First of all, the reason for this commandment. Secondly, the sin against this commandment. And then finally, the restoration of this commandment. The Eighth Commandment simply states, you shall not steal. But as with the other commandments, we do not just speak here about the most obvious way in which this commandment is broken. We don't just speak here about breaking into somebody's house or business and steal their stuff. It's not likely that anyone here would do that or even contemplate doing that. So here again, as with the other commandments, we speak especially about the depth of our depravity, about our ingrained selfish behavior. According to our sinful nature, we first want to look after ourselves and make sure that we get what we want. Only then do we want to look at others and their needs. And we are jealous of others when they have more than we do. For that reason, the Eighth Commandment in the Old Testament has in mind the fellowship the Israelites are to have amongst each other in the particular situation of their peculiar circumstances. The Israelites were basically a people who lived of the land. They were an agrarian farming community. That the Lord kept this in mind when he brought down this legislation is evident from the wording of the Ten Commandments. A good example of that is the Tenth Commandment, where the Lord tells us about the kinds of things they are not to covet. You are not to covet your neighbor's ox or his donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. These are farm animals by which they made their living. And that's what the Lord has in mind when he gives them this commandment. For with this commandment, the Lord makes it possible for each person in the land of Canaan to have a decent existence. For that reason, when the Israelites entered the land of Canaan, each tribe was given its own territory. And within that territory, each family was given its own plot of land, its own inheritance. 
There they could grow their crops and tend their animals. And this inheritance, this plot of land, would belong to these families throughout their generations. That was even the case after the exile. When some of the Israelites returned from Babylon and other countries, many of those families went back to the land which they had before they first before they left the land and the same land that they received, that their family received when they first came to Canaan. The right to one's own inheritance was such a sacred right that even if a family would fall on hard times, then it would be very difficult to dispossess a family from its property. For example, it could happen that a family would be forced to sell their property because of hardships. Could be because of debts incurred, because of crop failure or illness or other causes. But that family always retained the first option to buy the land back at a later date. If that was not possible in the immediate future, then during the year of Jubilee, which occurred every 50th year, the land would automatically go back to the family that originally owned the land. But the Lord also provided for the fact that the family would have to go hungry during that, during that time when they were dispossessed. At the time that they were without their land, the Lord decreed that the dispossessed family should have access, for example, to an interest-free loan. That's what we read together in Leviticus 25, verse 35 and 36. That's the way you treat the poor and the needy. The Lord does not mean here, of course, that you cannot charge interest under different circumstances. If the money is to be loaned, for example, to set up a business or other such things. No, the Lord says here that you cannot take advantage of another man's misfortune. Israel also knew the year of release, which was different from the year of Jubilee. The year of release occurred once every seven years instead of once every 50 years. After six years, all the debts were canceled and all the slaves were to be set free. And in that same year, the land would be allowed to lay fallow so that the soil could have its rest and the poor could eat of the crop which grew naturally. The purpose of all this was for God to show how much he cared for his covenant people and through the care they are to show to each other. It is God's way of showing compassion to his people, to the weak and to the needy. He forbids exploitation of one's neighbor. Each person has its own dignity. The handicapped, the disabled, the bankrupt, the sick, the needy. No one is allowed to be exploited, and no one is to exploit the weakness and the miserable circumstances of another person. Ultimately, God is the one who gives man his possession. It all belongs to him in the first place. It's not yours. The simple principle that is at work in the New Testament and also today. 
Of course, during the time of the New Testament, the law no longer applied to the particular situation in which the Israelites found themselves during their time as an agrarian people. Now we have to do with people whose income is derived from much different sources. But the basis of the law remains the same. We are to use our earthly goods for the well-being of our neighbor. Why? Well, so that he can also serve his creator in a dignified manner. And who is more our neighbor than our brother or sister in the Lord? Ultimately, the Eighth Commandment, as do all the other commandments, goes back to the time of paradise. At that time, the Lord made a covenant with man. He told man that he could enjoy his whole creation. In Genesis 2, we can read how rich that creation was. Pure water flowed through the Garden of Eden. There was food in abundance, and that food was totally satisfying. Adam could eat from the trees the Lord had planted to their heart's content. But all that food and drink and abundance did not belong to them. It all belonged to the Lord. And yet what happened? Well, Adam and Eve sinned. And with the fall into sin, they clearly transgressed the Eighth Commandment. For they took something that did not belong to them. They took the fruit of which the Lord God clearly said that they should not take. Adam had the abundance of the Garden of Eden to eat from, yet he was not satisfied. He wanted more. He became greedy. So he stole. Adam and Eve did not want to acknowledge at the moment they took the fruit from the tree that everything belongs to the Lord and that he is the one who feeds and nourishes his children with every good thing. That was Adam and Eve's greatest sin. Now today, you and I, we have to be careful that we do not fall back into that original sin of Adam. For look at what the Lord does for you and for me each day. Do you or I have any worries where our daily bread comes from? No. On the contrary, we are richly supplied. And so, we must be thankful to him, for we don't deserve it. Because of our sins, we have squandered our birthright. It's only because of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that we can receive these things now and be restored to the original children, to the original position as children of God. And so, the same principles again apply as did before the fall into sin. Before the fall into sin, Adam worked in the Garden of Eden, not so that he could eat. No, he worked in the Garden of Eden because he had already been given his food. And the same thing is true today. And so think about it. Why do you work? Do you work so that you can bring food on the table? Do you work in order to increase your own possession here in life? If that's the case, you have your priorities wrong. And then you had better think again about the true meaning of the Eighth Commandment. 
For the basis of the Eighth Commandment is not that we work in order to acquire things, but in order to use God's gift for the benefit and well-being of our fellow man. It is to the glory of God. Think about the Lord's Prayer. We are taught in that perfect prayer to pray the Lord to give us our daily bread. We're not praying here for the bread that we have earned. No, the Lord has obliged himself to give it to us without asking anything in return. That, of course, doesn't mean that we shouldn't work for it, of course. We must work. But we work not in order to eat, but we eat in order to work, in order to be able to work. That's the way it is for you and for me as God's children, just like it was in paradise. This is completely different for unbelievers. As Christians, we conduct our lives in accordance with our confession that our help is in the name of the Lord. That's what we confessed this morning, and I heard you say it again this afternoon. I'm sure you meant that. Without him, we have nothing. Without him, we can do nothing. And so we must be thankful that he takes care of us, gives us the ability to do things, to move, to talk, to interact, to interact with God and each other. And if such thankfulness is the basis of our work, then he will also bless our work. And then our labor is done out of love for the Father who has given us these many things and who also gives us a task in life and who has made us stewards of his creation. It's wonderful that God has given you and me a task here on earth, isn't it? It's good to be busy with things. It's good to do things for God's glory to serve the well-being of your family, of your neighbor. And God gives a task to everyone. Even when you are old and severely restricted in your movements, you still have a task to perform. For what is the task of everyone here? It is to glorify God in all the things you do and say. There's one thing you can always do, you can pray for and be a blessing to others in so many other ways. Just a smile goes a long way to show that you love someone. And that is why a Christian may never grumble about work, about the work that he has been given to do, even if it seems only insignificant for the Lord, there is no such thing as an insignificant task. Every job you do is significant, even if it is cleaning out toilets and shoveling manure. The Lord has entrusted each of us with our own particular duties here on earth. He has also given us our own talents in this work, and he wants us to use those talents to the utmost of our ability. What kind of children would we be if we did not use our talents or if we used it 
for our own glorification? Brings us to our second point, namely the sin against this commandment. It's noteworthy that Adam could not perform his task as steward over creation by himself. So what did the Lord do? He gave him a wife to help him. And God created man to carry out his task on earth in cooperation with others because he also gave him a family. Together we are to glorify God here on earth. And that includes our labor. Now, with the fall into sin, that all changed. Now, mankind came into competition with each other. It became man's nature instead to no longer work for the Lord, but for himself. To acquire as many goods as he can for himself. For that reason, we get the warning in this Lord's day that we should not engage in such wicked schemes and devices as false weights and measures deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money, and usury. Such activities are born out of greed, out of the love for money, certainly not out of a love for the Lord. At the time when the Catechism was written, weights and measures were not strictly regulated by the government. And in those days, it was a common practice, a business practice, to use false weights and measures so they could defraud the public. Now, in today's world... That is not really possible anymore. But there are so many other ways in which people are regularly defrauded. And that can be done in many subtle ways. It's not so hard to defraud an unsuspecting client, for example, especially if he or she is not knowledgeable about the product or service that he is requiring. It is easy to defraud the weak the elderly, the young people, the inexperienced. It is a shame when a Christian businessman does the same thing as the world in that regard. The Lord teaches us something completely different in the parable of the unrighteous steward. We read there about the way the unbeliever conducts his business. The steward of a rich man was dishonest in his business dealings. And the steward found out that his boss got wind of this. And the steward knew that his days were up. He was about to be let go. So what does he do? One by one, he summons his master's debtors and underhandedly reduces their debts. Of course, these debtors, being greedy men themselves, did not protest. They went along with his wicked scheme. They were quite happy to have their debt reduced. Now, in that regard, that steward was quite sly. For that's exactly what he wanted. He wanted to use those people to be beholden to him. And in this way, he wanted to befriend them so that once he was let go, he would have someone to turn to when he would be down and out. Quid pro quo. One good turn deserves another. His own boss, the rich man, who would endear himself to his customers in this way, even commended him for his actions. And now let's look at how the Lord Jesus applied this parable. He says in Luke 16, verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. That's a surprising answer, isn't it? But 
what exactly does he mean here? Well, he actually says, look at the world and how clever it is with the dealing of money. The people of the world know exactly how to gain an advantage over another. They know how to make it work for them. Well, he says, you must do the same. However, there is a great difference. The unbeliever is only, different, is only interested in the riches of the world. And he will gain advantage by hook or by crook. Such an unbeliever will receive his, early, his earthly reward. But in the end, he will receive nothing at all. But you, you must use the money and the riches of the world not for your own advantage, but so that you may receive eternal habitations, dwellings. You must use whatever you have been given to the glory of God. Make friends in the world by means of your possessions, but not so that they may praise you, but so that they may learn to praise God, who owns all things. In other words, use your money to do good and to bring others to Christ. By so doing, you will receive eternal life. Brothers and sisters, I don't have to tell you, but the Lord has richly blessed us, hasn't he? Why does he do that? So that we can use it to our own advantage? Of course not. So that we can show off with it? No. So that we can use it for the benefit of others. So that we can use it for the glory of God. So that God's word may go out into the world. How thankful are you and I for God's gifts? Many of us live in beautiful homes and have late model cars and recreational vehicles and all kinds of toys. We know how to indulge ourselves, don't we? But what about the things that belong to God? What about, for example, the work of mission at home and abroad? And what about the people within your own neighborhood who have serious financial or other difficulties? What kind of priority do those things have for you and for me? And what about all the other things that belong to God's kingdom? Are they an afterthought? Our children have to learn from youth that God and his kingdom must be number one in their lives. They must learn that from us by example. And therefore, as soon as the youth of the church begin to earn money, little as that may be, they must learn to surrender a portion of that money already to the Lord and his church. Do you also do that, young people? Also those that are already making money? And also those who are struggling financially, especially young couples, have that. But they still must contribute to the church and the needy, even if it is very little. The question for all of us is, do you or I show in our lives that we know that all things belong to the Lord? One time the Lord Jesus said, Matthew 16, verse 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Brings us to the last point, the restoration. 
Think about what the Lord gave up for us so that we could have life and everything that belongs to it. He sent his son who emptied himself of his equality with God so that he could save us from the terrible fate of eternal death. He became poor for us so that we may be rich. He gave up the inheritance which he had with the Father, all the glory that he had with him, everything that he had with him, he gave it all up. No one ever more gave ever more than Christ. He even gave his life for us. And in this way, he has made it possible that we can have the communion of saints, that we can live in freedom and prosperity. He guides and protects the church so that in the end we may have total victory over Satan through him who loves us as a father and a mother loves his child and who will do anything to give his child the best in life. In him we have our food and drink, our clothing and our shelter. In him we have our jobs and our financial security. And above all, in him we have eternal life. As Paul says in his letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 and following, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's so easy to fall into the trap of materialism. No one is immune from that. Even the best-intentioned people can succumb to the temptation. And that is why it is good that time and again we are reminded of the sure riches that we have with our Father in Heaven. Do you want to be rich, brothers and sisters? That includes all of you, young people, boys and girls, elderly then invest in the spiritual blessings of your Heavenly Father. For only such an investment will give you true contentment. That is the only investment which will never rot. It will last into eternity. That is the promise of God. And you can be sure of its fulfillment. God has made you and me rich indeed. There is no end to the riches he gives you in the life you're after. All you have to do is to believe. And all those riches will be yours. Amen.